I also like to see people who are on a team and got selected to be a leader on the team, like the captain or a leader on debate or whatever, because it shows that they were committed to something and people were respecting them during that. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today we're talking with General Stanley McChrystal. His new book, Team of Teams, an excellent read. And I really, really enjoyed this conversation. We're gonna talk about leadership from a special forces perspective, why flexibility and adaptability are the cure for an unpredictable landscape, and some techniques for building that flexibility in ourselves, and why relationships are the key to success of any organization, military or otherwise, and how we can develop those relationships and networks to improve our own organizations. Really glad to have you with us here today at AOC. So enjoy this episode with General Stanley McChrystal. And by the way, if you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the AOC Toolbox. That's where we discuss concepts like reading body language, nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking, mentorship, influence, persuasion tactics, and everything else that we teach here at The Art of Charm. If you're in the US, you can text CHARMED to 33444, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. Everywhere else, just go to theartofcharm.com and also at theartofcharm.com slash podcast, you can find the full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the show. All right, let's talk to General Stanley McChrystal. I toured and spoke to the 2nd Battalion, Ranger Battalion, we did a little training up at Fort Lewis. I got the shirt to prove it. I said, oh, I'm interviewing General Stanley McChrystal, and uh, one of the guys there, Brian Wright, shout out to him, he's the ABC at 2nd Battalion. He said you're one of his heroes, and he said one day he saw you, I don't even know, I guess it was in Iraq, and he yelled at you, he didn't know who you were, something was amiss with the security or something like that, and he just let loose, and then he found out who you were, and he said, oh my gosh, I'm in so much trouble, and he said later on you came up to him and said, I'm glad you're still doing your job. He was worried, and you said, no, I'm, this is what you're supposed to do. It doesn't matter what's on my epaulets or whatever, right? I was, I was on an operation with him, and it was at night, and so they couldn't tell, you know, all cats are gray in the dark, same as generals. And I remember he jacked me up and he was, he was right. And I said, hey, you know, good job. And I thought that was a funny story and very kind of illustrative of what you hear about, about how the way that you work. And I really enjoyed the book as well. It's really well researched. It's not just, hey, I was a general, so I know all this stuff. There's a lot of stories in it. There's a lot of history in it. And there's a lot of real application for corporate teams to put the special forces team building psychology into action. So I really appreciated. it. And that's why I wanted to talk to you today, because I think there's so much here, uh, and I really appreciate it. I really think there's going to be a lot here for the AOC audience. Well, I appreciate it, too. And I was excited by us writing the book because I learned so much in the process. And so more people can get the ideas, the better I feel about it. Now, one of the things that this book is, of course, focused on team of teams are the teams that are created not only within special forces, but how these sort of same concepts can be applied to business. And you mentioned that even guys like Steve Jobs were most proud of the teams they created as opposed to the products from Apple. And yet, when you hear about folks like Steve Jobs, he was so hard on everyone, he was kind of a terrible person to work with as a fault. Where's the line between that, or does that not matter? Because in the military, you kind of don't hear a lot about, well, you know, I really liked working with this person. It's more like this guy got the job done or didn't. Yeah, I think there's a fine line there. The first thing is a small team that takes pride in what it did, the kind you mentioned later in your life. You know, it was fun to be a part of that 
Think of the people you meet that were in Iraq or Afghanistan, even if those wars don't come out like we hope they did. Almost all the veterans I talked to that were in good units, you know, they talk fondly about the experience through the lens of, hey, I was with people I really loved and, and cared about. I was proud to be part of it. When you talk about the leader, I think there's a line in my experience. People want leaders to take them to success. They want leaders to demand a lot of them. In fact, they take pride in a demanding leader. But the tipping point is they don't take pride in someone who is abusive without purpose. You know, people took pride that Vince Lombardi pushed his teams hard physically and whatnot, but they never talk with pride with a leader who is personally demeaning to people or a leader who pits people against each other. They will sometimes discount that as saying, well, it was a good leader but he did this. I think we need to make sure that we don't think that very, very demanding leadership that's also toxic, as we call it, is truly effective. Do you care what your subordinates think of you personally, or are you more concerned with what they think of the results or their ability to achieve results? Well, I'm actually very concerned about what they think about me personally, but maybe on a slightly different level than might be obvious. Popularity is not important whether they love you or think you're a good guy. I mean, we want to be loved. But the reality is you want first to be trusted. You want people to think that you are competent, that you have their best interests at heart. You want them to believe that you are honest, your integrity matters. So you could sort of wrap that into you want them to trust and respect your character. Now, if they then grow to like you as an individual, that's important. But the first is critical. That's interesting, right? Because people won't do the job that they need to do if they don't respect the leadership. Is that what you mean? Well, that's exactly right. And respect, really, the longer the task, the more that's important because you can come in and scream at people and they will typically do what you first scream at them about. And you'll say, well, hey, I must be an effective leader even though I'm a jerk. The reality is over time that wanes because they won't keep doing it. They also won't do anything they don't have to do. They'll do what you tell them. But I don't know how many times in my career I didn't give a good order or what I did was incomplete or I dropped the ball. And the organization didn't. They just understood what had to happen. They didn't execute what I said. They executed what should have been said. And they were thus effective. And they did it partly because they just want to do the right thing. And they did it partly because I think they gave me the benefit of the doubt. They said most of the time, you know, Stan McChrystal is either right or tries to be. And so we're willing to help him and fill in the the rest of the way. Now, was special forces something you had your eye on early in your career? And, you know, if not, how did you end up going in that direction? It was. In reality, I grew up in the, uh, really, maybe I said came of age, late 60s, early 70s. My father was in Vietnam. My brother's in Vietnam. You remember the stories of, uh, the Green Berets in Vietnam. That was something that sort of captured my imagination. I'd watched movies like The Longest Day, and I remember the Rangers climbing Ponta Hawk in the movie. So the romance of that idea got in my mind when I was young. And then when I was at West Point, became uh, even stronger. So finally getting there, I say finally getting there, I got there after two years in the 82nd first, and then went to Special Forces. Wasn't a surprise for me. Now, were you kind of the model West Point student who sits down, studies hard, grinds it out, and just outworks everyone? If you think your listeners will believe it, that's what I'll say. 
But, <laughs> but, but the record would quickly prove me a liar. No, there were several problems with me at West Point. The first was I went to West Point not taking academics seriously. And I wasn't well prepared in math and science. And the first two years of West Point are math and science heavy. So the first year of West Point, we had like 1,370 people started in my class, I think it was. And I was in the bottom like 10. 10% or 10 people? No, the bottom 10, not 10%. I wish it oh, man. 10%. And so I just did horribly for much of my first two years. And then as we switched subjects to things that were history and English, a greater percentage, and I got a little bit more serious in life, particularly about West Point, I started doing much better. But that was academics. The other side of it was my conduct. I got to West Point thinking that this was sort of a, a short-term thing I would go through en route to being an Army officer. So my goal in life wasn't to be a West Point cadet. To me, that was a means to an end. And so I got to West Point not taking the place very seriously uh, in terms of personal conduct and discipline. And so my first year and a half there, I got massive amount of disciplinary trouble. In fact, I logged 128 punishment tours. That's 128 hours walking on the area, they call it. It's a place between the barracks in dress uniform with your rifle, and you just walk back and forth for an hour at a time. And I had to do 128 of those. And then I also got confined in my room for months on end. I came within a few demerits at the end of my first or plebe year, freshman year of getting thrown out. And it was all just lack of personal maturity, a lack of discipline. I got religion, you know, in a sense, toward the second half of my sophomore year and sort of flew straight and narrow after that. But I was uh, pretty much in danger for the first almost two years. That's an interesting learning curve. Was there anything that you were doing then, even when you were thumbing your nose at authority in some way, that you brought over to your role as a commander in Afghanistan? Yeah, you know, I, I say this in retrospect. I think so. If you really go back to, it was prioritization. I wanted to be a soldier and I wanted to be a combat soldier. And West Point is important, but it didn't feel like it was about that. It felt like it was kind of Mickey Mouse. It felt like it was very bureaucratic. And so I developed an impatience for that kind of thing. I developed an impatience for leaders who wrap themselves in the process, wrap themselves in the rules. And I actually think that helped me long term. And I had some colleagues at West Point who were very similar as cadets and were similarly uh, successful later as senior officers because rules should have a purpose. And if they're not serving their purpose, they should be ignored or changed. I think that did help me. That's an interesting comment. If rules aren't serving a purpose, they should be ignored or changed. Sounds a little bit like the special forces sort of rules of operation, right? Like, look, if this isn't working for us, we're not here to check all the boxes. We're here to get it done. Well, that's exactly right. We used to have a saying, if it's stupid and it works, it ain't stupid. And the idea is the army develops doctrine and processes. And if you don't watch it, you create an organization that learns that if they follow the rules, if they follow the processes, that they never get in trouble. Even if they don't win, they don't get in trouble because they followed the processes. And yet that's not the way war should be fought, particularly special operations war. You should only look at what it takes to accomplish the mission. And as long as it's not illegal or immoral, the force ought to be able to do it. One of the things I found most effective when I was leading special operations soldiers, I got more senior, was 
if you give people a lot of specific guidance or limitations on how to do something, what you've really done is created a bunch of excuses for not getting the job done. And yet, if you take all those away and you say, as long as it's not illegal or immoral, do it. I don't care what it costs. I don't care this, this, this. Do it. Then suddenly they are left with a pretty wide ability to get it done and very little ability to come back and say, well, we couldn't do it because of this or that. And I found special operations soldiers really reacted well to that because they don't like to be told what to do or how to do something. They just like to be told the end result. And I believe that's true in just about all organizations as well. Now, I definitely think that there's probably a lot of room to remove bureaucracy when it comes to organizations like the military, and it seems like you had a a real strength there. And there's a lot of talk in the book and in other articles written about you and by you about sort of cutting the fat or trimming the fat. What is this thing about you only eating one meal a day? You're just famous for not eating much. What's that all about? Yeah, you know, I get all kind of zen credit for that, and it's true. I eat one meal a day, and I haven't eaten yet today. I'll eat a little bit after we finish this. It's just something I started when I was a first lieutenant because I thought I was getting pudgy. And so I sort of defer gratification until the end of the day, and then I eat anything I want. It's not smart. It's not what health people say, but I'm 62. I'm in good shape. So, you know, hey, why change? I get that. And I'm really glad that you said that because my note here for this is essentially a lot of people I know that were talking to you or writing about you, they took that as some sort of life hack. But I think it's really dangerous to take everything successful people do and assume they're doing it for this very specific purpose that they've measured and that if we emulate it, we'll get similar results. Because going back to the Steve Jobs example, we could just as easily say, look, the key to running a good tech company is to be a huge jerk to everyone, just like Steve Jobs. And that's a dangerous assumption than not eating any breakfast or lunch for that matter. It seems like almost an example of that. It's more circumstantial. You know, you're getting pudgy in your own mind. When you're a general, you probably don't have time to eat. You don't wanna eat in front of soldiers who aren't eating. And so you just go, screw it, I'm not gonna eat until nine, and that's what happened. And it's not some sort of like, hey, if you don't eat till nine, you can become a general too, right? You nailed it. You know, people will watch somebody successful, like the habits of highly successful people, and they will get very confused. I had a period of time when I slept four hours a night, and I never told anybody that that's a good idea. I don't think it's a good idea, and I don't do that now. I did it because I had a period of five years when that's all I had. But people will get that and they'll go, well, he's achieved a higher level of consciousness by doing this. And therefore, you know, I will do that. So uh, it's good that you ask. Yeah. Well, here's what you have eaten, which is a lot of flack. You are a popular pinata, my man. You have a lot of can't win situations between the politicians, the public and the media. What occurred to me was it seems like a bad idea to try and have our warriors, and I mean our soldiers and military, consider politics in their wartime decision-making. It just seems like a terrible idea. And I wondered, how do you stay focused on what's important when there are so many distractions and other people trying to influence your actions that in their influence, their outcome has nothing to do with military winning? Yeah, at first I'd say you cannot separate politics and war. I mean, Clausewitz taught us that war is just an extension of politics, and he was right. So warriors, particularly senior leaders, have got to understand politics, and politics are why you're doing things. So I'm not arguing for a simplistic separation of war and politics, but 
when a military leader is in a job, if the military leader finds that they start to watch all the things that are written about them, that they start to be impacted by the calls that they get of people who are excited, you know, different political figures trying to push you one way or another for various reasons. What happens is you stop being effective. You start being consumed with this. It's almost like I think I've never run for office, but I think a politician running for office, if he's watching the, or she is watching the polls every day, I think they can become fixated on something that really isn't the measure of whether they're doing what they should do. And so I think that's really important for leaders. And what I used to tell leaders junior to me following me is as you get more senior in command, you're going to take some flack and you're going to be questions. And sometimes it's going to be very legitimate. You will do things that are stupid or, or whatever. And so some of it's right. And then some of it won't be, but you can't, can't spend your life worried about it. And so you've got to treat every job like it's your last job. Don't take command saying, if I do well at this command, I'll get a next higher command. Because if you do, you'll spend all your time worried about not making mistakes to get to the next one. And that gets to this risk-averse culture that, that haunts a lot of organizations, just not the military. You've really got to be willing to say, I'm going to do everything that I think is right and let the cards you know, come out as they do. I feel good about it because at the end of the day, people have beat on me and whatnot. But when I look myself in the mirror, or I look my wife and son in the face, I don't feel bad about anything I did or didn't do. And I think that had I thought differently, that might be a different case. Well, Newsweek called you a snake-eating rebel and a Jedi commander. That must be pretty cool. Other people are paying attention to you not necessarily following the flock. When people write stuff like that, you just sort of roll your eyes because, you know, what's a Jedi guy? I mean, that's a movie character. So... I get what they're trying to say. And sometimes some of the things people write can make you think, hey, I must be really smart. Or I must be a cool guy. And the thing I remind people is the very complimentary things written about you are no more correct than the very hateful things. And so if you start believing the good, then you better believe the bad as well. Is it true that you carry custom made nunchucks with a Bruce Lee quote on them? <laughs> if I carried nunchucks, I'd hit myself in the head. Yeah, I mean, it says here he carries a custom-made set of nunchucks in his convoy engraved with his name and four stars. See, we always joked about nunchucks. Nobody ever uses, nobody really fights ever used nunchucks. We joked about it. So my security detail went and got a set of nunchucks from some who never swear, and they stenciled my name on the handles and put them in the car as a joke. The problem is knuckleheads get in there and they see that and they go, this is serious. If you're the kind of person that think that's serious, then I can't help you. Yeah, right. Well, there's Newsweek for you. <laughs> you said it, not me. But you'll want to know, I do still have those laying around somewhere. Yeah, if you can take a picture of those, we'll make it the show art for this episode. <laughs> you did go out on dozens of nighttime raids, though, during your time in Iraq. And in our research for the show, we saw some quotes from some of these British officers who said something like, the lads love Stan McChrystal. You'd be out somewhere in Iraq and someone would take a knee behind you or beside you and a corporal would be like, who the hell is that? And it's freaking Stan McChrystal. Of course, they probably said, it's freaking Stan McChrystal, right? And you're in the trenches. I did. But, you know, if I really take it down to a corporate characterization, you know, a good leader in a manufacturing plant goes and walks on the shop floor. A good leader goes and checks in rooms and watches people do their job. My unit did its job on nighttime raids. 
So the only way I could see my unit do a job on nighttime raids was to go on them. And it wasn't to try to be, you know, Hollywood to get on the raid. It wasn't trying to get myself killed. It was making sure that I knew what we were doing on raids, how the force was operating. But also, there's a little bit of it's important to show the people you work with that you're willing to share the danger. And, you know, I would go on raids with an SAS troop, the Bread Serve, Delta Force and the SEALs, and they were happy to have me come along, but they didn't want me to get hurt on their watch. So they, you know, they're always kind of like, oh, wow, if something happens to the boss, the Sergeant Major is going to kill us. So, you know, it was me trying to share some danger with them and also to see what's going on. It wasn't become I was, because I was particularly valuable on the mission because they certainly didn't need me. But it was really good for me. And you can forget what's happening down close to the point of action in any business if you're not willing to roll your sleeves up. I see that. And for startups and the military both, or any company for that matter, we're plagued by this legacy baggage and old ways of doing things and not wanting to get down from the management office and go walk on the shop floor or be in the trenches. But how do we shake loose of some of that old baggage without throwing the baby out with the bathwater? I mean, there has to be some good from the old ways, from the bureaucracy itself. How do you test and figure out the new model, what you need to shake off versus what you need to keep without going backwards and sacrificing lives learning that lesson? No, that, that's a really good one. And I'll start by saying, first, you have to understand how the organization operates, which means you have to understand the macro picture, the environment in which the organization operates. You've got to understand how your organization operates from top to bottom. And you've got to understand what your role as the leader is in that organization and where your value add is. When I went on nighttime raids with my force, my value add was not the tactical participation there. It was me understanding what they do and me improving their morale. So they do their job better. And I understand the big picture better. So everything has to come back to what is the overall success of the organization? And then what is my role in contributing to that? There's another factor that happens today, and it's probably more difficult than at any time in the last maybe a couple hundred years. And that is because of the pace of change and particularly technology and whatnot, it's very easy to be a senior person in an organization and be completely unfamiliar with what is done down at the lowest level. Because if you think about it, in a more static world, you grow up in an organization and you do shop level like jobs. And as you matriculate up, you have experience that is still relevant when you get senior. But now, because the technology has changed, what we use, how we do things, the senior leader can go down to the shop floor and it's completely unfamiliar to them. It's totally different from anything they ever did. So the relevance of their earlier experiences stretch pretty thin. That causes some senior leaders to retreat from it because if a senior leader goes down and they don't know what they're doing, they worry that they're not credible. They worry that they come down and they make a fool of themselves or that sort of thing. And so there's a natural tendency to stay away. You know, I started with that because things had changed. I'd grown up on, you know, on the shop floor doing ops, but then as I got senior and I went down and we're using new equipment, technology of all kinds, I'd go down there and I'd just sort of be honest with the guys and said, I don't know how we do this. So show me. And, you know, once you get over that unwillingness or hesitance to do that, I found the force likes to show you. They're not critical that you don't know. They understand why you don't. 
and they sort of appreciate you asking and they take pride in being able to say, here, boss, here's how we do this. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze your online marketing campaigns. And sign up today for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. And now a quick message from our newest sponsor. Remember, supporting our sponsors is the best way to support the show. That's right. AJ, did you know socks, tees, and underwear are the three most requested clothing items in homeless shelters? I had absolutely no idea. Bombas knows, and they're doing something about it, making ridiculously comfortable versions of all three and donating one for every item sold. With all the clothing brands out there, it's nice to find some basics that don't just feel good, but do good too. That is completely amazing. And that's why we're so excited to be working with our newest sponsor, Bombas. To date, Bombas, one purchase equals one donated commitment, has helped customers donate over 100 million essential clothing items to people facing homelessness. That's a lot of good done by people just buying the Bombas they wear every day. Visit bombas.com slash charm and use code charm for 20% off your first purchase. And once you try Bombas, you'll know why so many people have purchased and donated so many. The comfort geniuses at Bombas work tirelessly to make your everyday things your favorite things. Whether there's an arch-supporting sock that feels like it was sculpted to your foot, a buttery soft tee with no itchy tag, or underwear that feels like nothing while supporting everything. The best part, AJ, Bombas has a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you got the wrong size, your dog chews up your socks, or a pair vanishes in the washing machine, and you know they will, it's easy to get a free return, exchange, or replacement. There's nothing worse than when Puppers gets a hold of my favorite Bombas athletic socks. They're precision engineered for being active with sweat wicking power, impact cushioning, blister defense, and no annoying toe seams that get between you and your goals. I try to limit my essential purchases to one time a year, and I was so pumped to know that Bombas has my underwear, socks, and tees needs completely covered. I have been loving the soft underwear and tees here in Medellin. Ready to get comfy and give back? Head over to bombas.com slash charm and use code charm for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash charm and use code charm at checkout. 
in the book, you make a distinction between complicated versus complex. And I wanna get that distinction and talk about why that's important and how we can harness it. Because I, I think it is very tempting to make things complicated or complex. And with special forces and the way that you're teaching us to lead our businesses and team of teams, we see that flexibility and adaptability is actually more important than any kind of complex or complicated plan that we can come up with. You're exactly right. To give you the short summary, the difference between complicated and complex is your ability to predict what is going to happen. In a complicated world, think the industrial revolution, you might have to study a problem in great detail and you might have to build a very complicated solution to it. Think of a complicated organizational structure or assembly line or process. But once you figure out the problem and you build this complicated solution, then you can operate it and everybody does their part and it sort of works because there's a predictability to it. It takes a while to understand, but if you pull this lever, it goes through all the steps and X comes out as the result. And that's fine as long as the result that you need is static, meaning it doesn't change very fast so that you don't have to change your machine often. In a complex world, what you've got is too many variables, too much interdependency between those variables, and too much speed. And so predicting a situation, the relationship between cause and effect, is fundamentally impossible. And so when you get in a complex situation and you really cannot predict what's going to happen, you can prepare yourself, you can put yourself in a boxer stance to be as flexible as possible. But you've got to go in knowing that you're almost never going to have the right answer to the problem when you start. You're only going to figure it out as it goes along and you're going to constantly adapt. And most of our organizations and the leaders we developed, that's not the way we took it on. And so particularly in special forces, what we tried to say is the plan is never going to go according to plan. Things will never be something you can predict. Instead, what we've got to produce people who see emerging problems and deal with them in the most flexible and innovative way possible. Right, so it's possible to be so efficient and streamlined that you're no longer flexible enough to react to different variables in the equation or the situation, and flexibility and adaptability can make up for the lack of ability to predict the outcome. That's exactly right. If you think of our economic system, we have a tension there because there's a pull to efficiency. I'm on the board of an airline. And if you do on a sunny day without a lot of maintenance problems, you tweak all of the schedules and the use of your aircraft and your crews to this really tight system that is just incredibly efficient because everybody's doing something. That looks good on paper. And if it all worked as planned, that would be very profitable. Unfortunately, it doesn't. Rain clouds, other things come, maintenance problems, employees that have to go home sick. And suddenly you're in this constantly adapting situation. So you have to put some flex in the system. You have to give yourself some slack, some room to adapt. And that's that constant tension between people who want to be perfectly efficient and then in organizations that need to be adaptable. One of the things that you mentioned in the book that I found really interesting was that you said the number one thing that moves things along and makes a difference that translates to the battlefield is relationships. And AOC, we run these live programs every week where we teach people relationship building skills, networking, and things like that. I was surprised to hear that because in the military, you kind of think net hierarchy, even if we're talking flexibility, why would relationships play such a large role? Can you explain that a little bit? 
I sure can. If you think of the military as a big machine, as millions of people, and everybody is a part in that machine, and you put them in a uniform, and the parts are, are fitted to where they go, it would appear that the process is king. Relationships don't matter. But in reality, it's the opposite. If you take special operating forces as a microcosm of that, what they do in these small teams is they build these relationships. Sometimes the team of five people will stay together for 10 or more years without a change in a single person. And they develop these deep relationships. And what that does is it allows them to operate with a level of understanding of the other person, a sense of common purpose, a sense of trust. And then this flexibility, because to use a business term, there are no transaction costs between them. You know the other person's going to do this if you need them to do this, and you absolutely can consider that done. So in a small group, that comes sort of organically. When you get into a large organization, you can't build those relationships between thousands and thousands of people. But what you can do is build relationships between key leaders. You can build some relationships generals in warfare from movies of the old days from the Civil War, World War II. And they've got one persona when they're on the battlefield in front of the troops. But then when they're among their fellow commanders, sometimes they'll lapse into first names and they'll lapse into, hey, remember 20 years ago when we were together or I was at your wedding? And those relationships create this ability to get things done. I remember the commander of the 82nd Airborne Division in Afghanistan in 2007 was a classmate and a lifetime friend of mine named Dave Rodriguez. And I was commanding JSOC and we had to do this operation in eastern Afghanistan. Nobody directed us to cooperate together. Instead, we brought our forces together. We, he lent me equipment and forces. I did the same. All things that weren't mandated, but they were just because we were close friends and we had worked really hard and it was pretty difficult. And one night he had a young sergeant show up about one in the morning to my headquarters with a little handwritten note. General Rodriguez had written this quote that had come from General Sherman to General Grant during the uh, war. And it said, Grant, I always knew that wherever I was, you thought of me. And if I was in trouble, you would come if alive. And it's this extraordinary statement of I'm there for you no matter what. When you get that kind of trust between key leaders then suddenly organizations can do things together they can't do otherwise. This is almost an intense concept or principle seemingly throughout special forces in general. I mean, you have schools like BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition School, which is, I guess, a Navy SEAL kind of training initiation. I don't know, really know what you would call that other than, other than BUDS. And you're building trust there as well as any training that you see with special forces. It seems to be more about group cohesion and group activity and flexibility and adaptability and teamwork than pretty much any other principle. That's exactly right. And we reinforce it in the training by things like buddy teams. You can never be without your assigned buddy. Everything you do is either a boat team or a squad and ranger train, that sort of thing. And they do peer ratings. You're not looking for the smartest guy to be in special forces. You're not looking for the strongest you're looking for the person who can and will build those relationships and the person who will stick to it. I mean, the person who won't quit. Those are really the core traits that need to come out. So people who build strong relationships are the same people that will go out and rescue their buddy on the battlefield. People who won't quit are the same people who, even though the unit is badly hit with casualties, will continue the mission and get it done. That's something that has to be 
bred into individuals and then also bred as the culture of the organization. For future special operations guys, it seems like in the book, you're looking for the best guys in terms of pure ratings, not necessarily the highest achievers with pristine records. Luckily for you, given your record at West Point, I suppose. When you interview and vet people for the McChrystal Group, how do you elicit the information that you need? You gotta have some tricks up your sleeve, maybe like unfinished statements or something that forces people to fill in the blanks that shows that they've got the right stuff. Yeah, you're exactly right. The first thing we do, we're lucky enough in McChrystal Group to get really high quality young people applying for jobs. So we've got a pretty good population to look from. The first thing that we've learned is just standard set of interviews just won't get you there because a set of interviews are something somebody can prepare for, they can put on a certain persona. So the first thing we do is we try to talk to people who've known them before. Like almost nobody ends up getting hired in the Crystal Group unless they've done a full 10-week internship here or they were recommended by somebody in the organization. There are exceptions, but most people, there's some kind of longer-term relationship that has been built that allows you to, to really vet somebody. And then in the process, we ask different questions. One of the questions I always like to ask is, okay, if somebody was going to say Stan is a good guy, but what would the rest of the sentence be? And you know, people do say that. And so it's a person's willingness to be honest, their self-awareness. You're really trying to get into, can they fit into a team? Because if they can fit into a team, they can succeed here. Even if they're brilliant and they don't fit in, we won't be successful. So how do you find who has a great track record in terms of fitting into a team? I mean, what makes a track record at that level of performance? What types of metrics are you looking for? No, there's no set thing. I like to look for people who've served on sports teams or been part of organizations and they stuck to it. You know, they were on it for a while. I also like to see people who were on a team and got selected to be a leader on the team, like the captain or a leader on debate or whatever, because it shows that they were committed to something and people were respecting them during that. I think that's really key. If someone has worked somewhere else, you want to know what other people thought of them. You want to know why they left somewhere. Because even if somebody said, yeah, they were great, but they left, you kind of, you want to understand what about their dynamics with other people either caused them to want to leave or other people happy to see them. I know that you read a lot of audiobooks, which is similar to what I do as well. I'm curious about what you read and how you apply those to your work as well. Because I know you believe in constantly learning and taking in info and sharing that info as well inside the organization. Yeah, that's really popular in McChrystal Group because a lot of us just like to read. I happen to do more audiobooks than reading, but I like to read a lot of history, listen to a lot of history, a lot of biography, because I think you learn a lot of leadership from people went into situations, what they did about it. It's a realistic not academic discussion of people are motivated by this. I really want to see what happened when people were in situations that were difficult and maybe how they succeeded or how they didn't. I also like books about big challenges like building the Boulder Dam or something because it's something that is an immense thing that has to be done by a team ultimately. So how do they scope the problem? How do they come together a team? What were all the problems that came through? And a war is the same thing. It's a big challenge that a bunch of people have got to come together to solve. Every once in a while, I read business books. But as you saw in Team of Teams, we try to make our points through stories. You know, we could say, you know, this is that. 
and you could take us on faith. But if we show you historically the point and then say, and here's the derived truth that happens to be universal, I think it, it sticks better with someone like me. We've seen this a lot as well. We interviewed Julian Guthrie about her book, How to Make a Spaceship, which the amount of sort of teamwork, shared consciousness that was required for projects like launching something into space is very similar to what you're describing here. And you also mentioned shared consciousness in organizations in the book as well. How do we develop that shared consciousness? It seems like you believe strongly in info sharing. It's key, especially for startups and things like that. How do you begin to form that? Because it's big enough of an endeavor that, especially in a big company, where do you even begin? Well, it's a huge endeavor, and it's not intuitively obvious that it's needed to a lot of people who grew up in a different environment. So what we mean by shared consciousness is everybody having a contextual understanding of the big picture of what the entire organization is trying to do. There's the old story years ago about the guy walking down the road and runs into two people with rocks in front of him and chisels. And he asks the first person, what are you doing? And the person says, well, I'm chiseling this rock. And he asks the next person, what are you doing? And he says, I'm part of a team building a cathedral. And it's a mindset of individuals that hopefully implies that not only do they know they're part of a team that has purpose to it, but also, how does my rock fit in? What do I have to do about my rock to make it the right fit? In organizations today, if you go back, even in our youth, organizational structure depended upon silos and specialization. People develop expertise. They did a certain thing on the assembly line or a certain part of the process. And the theory was nobody really needed to know the entire process except the orchestrators of it. Everybody else could sort of be in their little spot. They could focus down. They could hoe their own row, whatever you want to call it. And the genius of it, it was all come together and it would be whatever you wanted it to be. But nowadays, because things change so fast and because things are so complex, What we believe is you've got to achieve this level of contextual understanding of shared consciousness that's way past anything we've ever done before. And you've got to do it by pushing information in amounts and timeliness, unlike anything we've ever done. And the good news is, although our world got more complex to a great degree because of information technology, that same information technology gives you the opportunity to create shared consciousness in even pretty big organizations. But it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of discipline. What we have done in organizations is we've created in our clients keystone forums, we call it, where on a periodic basis that they set, but a very regular basis, they bring a large part of the organization together, and not for an all-hands pep talk, but for a synchronization. Everybody sees what's going on. Everybody gets updates. They're talking about it virtually in most cases, sharing notes, and then they're all going out and continuing on with their mission. But they're now informed. And when they're informed through this shared consciousness, they can make decisions without going back up the chain because they're suddenly empowered with knowledge that people at their level typically didn't have. And so suddenly they're part of the solution. They don't have to wait for micromanagement from the top. And in modern pace of things, we found that that micromanagement at the top just doesn't work anymore. Even with a genius at the top, you just can't micromanage because it's too fast and too complex. With the emphasis on transparency and info sharing and things like that, I was wondering what you think of things like WikiLeaks and this sort of ultra transparency, the Snowden type of stuff, 
where we take transparency and we just kind of crank it up to 11? I tend much more to 11 than I do towards the lower end of the spectrum. There's a certain limitation. There are things of information that shouldn't be shown or shouldn't be shared. I think that Edward Snowden was wrong. But I think that if you think about the solution to something like that is locking things down and not sharing information to avoid information that shouldn't be shared being shared, the cure is then worse than the disease. So I believe that if you lean heavily towards transparency, that usually you'll be right. There'll be some problems. But in aggregate, you're going to get much more value than cost from the risks involved. When we're looking at building flexibility, building transparency, how do we build flexibility into our lives? It seems like we've got to be willing to let go of the side of the swimming pool and make some changes. The challenge of building flexibility in our lives is in most organizations and even in our personal life, we're sort of programmed not to take risk. And so you say, how do you avoid risk? For your subordinates, what you often do is you put rules in where they can't do this or they can't do that, so they can't make a mistake. Or you sometimes even put yourself in a situation where you have a process that prevents you from making a decision too fast or doing something that's never been done before. And it's all designed to mitigate risk. The problem is it, to a great degree, it prevents taking advantage of opportunities. So when you're building flexibility in your life, I think the first thing to do is look at what are the opportunities? What are the costs of certain risks versus the opportunities? And we tend to be much more risk averse than we are opportunity oriented. So I think analyzing that there's some risks you shouldn't take. But if you really look at what the opportunities are, many of those risks tend not to be nearly as high as we pretend they are. So that's one of the first things to do. The second thing to do is give yourself the opportunity to adapt. And what I mean by that is if you have a job, you work 10 hours a day and you set it up so that you are busy those 10 hours of the day doing tasks that you've assigned yourself, you are not going to adapt or innovate very much because what you've done is you've taken away all your flexibility to do that if you're spending all your time doing things. So what I tell leaders as they're promoted is the first thing is avoid the temptation to make yourself essential to the organization by doing certain things. People will tend to want to do that just to feel like they're earning their pay. I believe leaders should vastly undertask themselves, push things down to subordinates that you naturally would do. And in fact, at first you'll feel a little guilty because you're having other people doing work that you think, well, I could do that. But the reality is by giving yourself that white space on the counter of flexibility, suddenly you've got the ability to adapt to emerging requirements or the ability to innovate or just the ability to get out and lead. Do you think that military leadership is easier than civilian leadership or vice versa? That's a great question. In some ways it's easier, but it's not easier in the way many people perceive it. The first thing is people think that military leadership's easy because you stand in front of the troops and you say, everybody go left and everybody goes left because they're so disciplined. That doesn't happen. And where it does happen is on a parade field where you have a bunch of soldiers and a sergeant barks a command and they all do it. And they do it because on the parade field, they're more scared of the sergeant than they are of anything else. If you get in combat, soldiers are not more scared of their leaders than they are of the enemy. And so suddenly they don't do things because you intimidated them or barked at them. They do them because they think it's the right thing to do, because they trust you. They think that 
most of the time, what you tell them will be right. And they do it because they don't want to let their comrades down. So it's a completely different set of motivations. So from that standpoint, military leadership is very similar to civilian leadership. Where it differs is military leadership always has the ability to wrap itself in the flag, the mission to say, we're doing it for the country. We're doing it for the great cause that we're on. It is harder in a civilian company to do that because a leader can stand up and say, we and ACME, whatever, are about saving the world. But at the end of the day, if it's a for-profit company, everybody knows it's a for-profit company. And so saving the world really is, we'll save the world on the way to making money. And then the other thing is, and people are sometimes surprised by this, the military can't use money as an incentive. There's no way to give a person in the military a bonus. There's no way to give them a raise that comes from Congress only. And so you say, well, you don't have all these important extrinsic motivating tools that we have in the civilian world. And I used to say in the military, thank God we don't, because money is never discussed. Nobody comes in and asks you for a raise. Nobody is ever unhappy because their bonus is lower than somebody else's. It takes all that out of the discussion and it just makes it simpler. And so in reality, in many ways, military leadership is, is easier. Where it's harder, and this might be surprising as well, is in combat, military leadership has a lot of flexibility. You make decisions, you go. In garrison or peacetime, there are a million bureaucratic limitations on you, starting with laws and politics and whatnot. And suddenly, making the kind of decisions that a good CEO would make in a company is really hard for a senior military leader to do. And so it's much more constrained. How do you stay focused on objectives and the mission in the face of the human cost on both sides? How do you insulate yourself or steel yourself or otherwise protect your mind and do what has to be done in a military operation? Yeah, leaders at every level have really got to get their mind around that one. General Grant during the Civil War, very rarely did he go to combat hospitals because he knew if he went there that the carnage he'd see might weaken his resolve, might weaken his nerve to give orders that he knew would produce more carnage. It's not that military leaders are hardened to that. It's that military leaders have to stay focused on what it takes to win. And so I think the first thing a military leader's got to do is understand there's going to be a cost. And the cost is not a number of casualties. It's a bunch of individuals. And when you go to hospitals or if people that you know are badly injured or killed and you're around that, it can be very, very difficult to justify to yourself that what you ordered actually made sense when you're up close to the cost. And so the leaders got to step back and constantly say, okay, this is what we have to do. It is worth a cost. The nation has decided it's worth a cost. You as a military leader have made a calculation that if I do this operation, there is very likely going to be uh, wounded and killed and get yourself ready for it beforehand. But it's never simple because before, during, and particularly after the operations, when that really comes home to your mind. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, 
and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Looking at the teams and looking at shared adversity that you construct in the military, what are some ways that you design adversity experiences for teams in business? It's sort of tangential to that. What are some of the strategies or ideas that you have for creating rapport and connection in person or throughout an organization? I mean, when you led JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Command, it seems like you were able to get a lot of different organizations in Iraq to work extremely effectively together. And I would assume that you import some of that to the McChrystal Group with your work in corporations in the civilian world. That's exactly what we do. The first thing is to build teams that work together. One common technique is to have them do something that's very difficult together. It doesn't have to be related to their job. So in the military, you'll have a tendency to do things that are physical. You'll go to the field and do an exercise that is just brutal. It might be frightening as well. Things that you do could be physically scary. And when people go through that kind of shared hardship and situation, they become much more connected to each other. It's, we used to say, privation, you know, pulls you closer. And so that's traditional military. In business, you'll often see that organizations will use similar things. They'll go on off-sites, they'll go on hikes, they'll go on climbs, and they're pretty valuable. They work very well. The other thing that you'll notice is if an organization has been through something that felt like a, an existential crisis, We've worked with some of the big banks and those that went through a really difficult time in 2008 with the financial crisis, there's a different bond between the people who survived that. If they feel like they did a good job against great adversity, they feel much closer to everyone and much closer to the organization as a result of that. So you'll often see in organizations, particularly younger startups, when you have those first few years where money's tight, seems like every other month you lose a client, the business is going to go under, that very tight bonds are formed, this loyalty to each other. As the organization gets more successful and it grows, and the newer people have not shared that experience, then suddenly those bonds get terrifically weaker. And in some cases, the older people resent the newer people because they weren't there when it was tough. And so when we work with organizations, we try to create ability, different venues to have people who don't sit next to each other also do things that work together. And sometimes they're work-related, sometimes they're physical things. 
we do see that relationships are really the sinew that holds organizations together. And I even saw this in the Ranger Creed, and I'm not sure all the history behind that, of course, but leave no man behind. It's not accomplish the mission at any cost. It's not make sure to do all these different things. It's just about the team. And so I thought that was really interesting to see that a lot of special operations guys, as diverse as they come, you've got the face piercing computer hackers, the commando working together on things, and especially in Iraq and Afghanistan, you see this even inside the organization itself. But one of the biggest issues that it seemed like towards the end of your military career was a deficit of that trust between you and President Obama. And we don't do politics at all on the show, but I'm bringing this up to, again, sort of highlight the importance of relationships in getting things done, even or perhaps especially at the highest levels of any organization and for any task, whether we're talking Walmart or war. This, for me, sort of started to bubble out of the book and bubble out of the things that I was reading about you. You say leaders can let you fail, but not let you be a failure. What does that mean in practice? Yeah, that's really important. And what it means is you can make mistakes and you can do things wrong, but people look more holistically. They look at your entire record or they look at all you're doing. And so they don't say, okay, just because Stan, you failed on this, you therefore go in the failure pile. And if you look more broadly, that's very rarely true of anyone or they have failure, but you can make someone feel like a failure if you focus on one thing. You mentioned something that I think is very important. In my time in the command in Afghanistan, I was dealing with a new administration of President Obama, not just a new president, but an entirely new team around him, an entirely new apparatus. And they were trying to figure out how they interacted with each other. At the same time, I'm trying to interact with them from thousands of miles away in Afghanistan. I've told people many times after what we should have done before I went to Afghanistan is we should have taken the vice president, the president, secretary of state, secretary of defense, and, you know, 10 or 12 key players and me and go on whitewater rafting, not talk about the war, just build a little bit of rapport and relationships with each other away from the White House where everybody's in a uniform or a suit and sitting at a table and trying to play a part because that's very stilted. And had we done that, we would have built relationships that would have had a little more sinew. And I got along really well with President Obama, but our relationship was pretty superficial. We'd really only met and spoken a few times. So if he hears or reads something about me, he can't triangulate that. He can't say, well, wait a minute. I know General McChrystal better than that. Let me put that in the, the broader experience I've had with that individual and decide if that makes sense. And that was true of all the relationships between the key players. And so I think that as we look at a new administration coming in now, my recommendation would be almost the same. I would take the new president and key members who aren't going to know each other. And in some cases, they're going to have slanted perspectives of each other from the past and sometimes carry attitudes related to that. And I would try to break that down and build as close up an informal relationship as I could between them, because in the, the months and years ahead, there are going to be constant external things that pull and push at the structure, the team that they are trying to create. It'll rip apart if they don't have the sinew to hold it together. When this article came out, you were on 60 Minutes on CBS News. Your first concern was letting your staff know that they didn't fail. 
to your earlier point. And it's true, history wants to tell the story about the person, but when you break it down, it is really all about the relationships and the network around that person. And I was surprised to see that echoed in a book like yours because I just, I figured there would be more sort of top-down principles that came from all that, and it really wasn't like that. It was just as relationship-based, if not more so, than any successful, agile startup. It's the special forces, if you lay them on top of Silicon Valley startups that are doing the right stuff, you just basically, instead of a bunch of people sitting down coding, you have a bunch of guys who are in really great shape. And that's those are the primary differences here. That's exactly right. And true every time I was dealing with one of the uh, key investors out in Silicon Valley, and I asked him about when he's judging a, a new young company, what are the things he looks for? And he, first he says, I'm looking for more than one founder at the top. I'm not looking for a single person who's pulling this company along because if they have one or more partners at the top, that means they are willing to and able to work with other people. I found that fascinating. Now, you retired in 2010 from the military after being unfortunately relieved of your position as the top commander in Afghanistan by President Obama following that Rolling Stone article, in case people were wondering what we're talking about back there. I just wondered, just on a personal note, how did that feel? I mean, what was the first thing that you felt when you found that out, when you heard that? Well, it wasn't exactly like that. What happened was this Rolling Stone article came out as a result of this guy who embedded for a very brief period with us. And it was very different than we thought it was. And it basically took a view that my staff had been free in their talk. Locker room talk is what they say, critical of key members of the administration, uh, vice president, whatnot and that I was running a sort of a loose ship in my command group. And that obviously became a big news story, particularly in a new administration, and that people perceive military-civilian tensions. And so I was asked to fly back and explain myself to the Secretary of Defense and the President, which I did. And I prepared my resignations. What I did was I went in to see the Secretary, and then I went to see the President, and I offered him my resignation. And I said, you know, obviously, I don't know how valid this article is. I don't think it reflects my team because I know my team. Most of us have been together for years in war. So I don't think it reflects them. I haven't had time to fact check this article. But me as a commander uh, is not supposed to be a reason for a, a big news story that causes you a challenge as the president because you're my commander in chief. And so I'm not supposed to be putting problems on your plate. I'm supposed to be keeping them off. And so I offered him my resignation. And so, and I told him, you can either accept my resignation and I'm fine with that and I'll move on if that's best for the mission. If you don't want to and you want me to go back to Afghanistan and soldier on, I'm fine with that too. And he said, he made the decision there that he would accept my resignation. And then uh, after 34 plus years of commissioned service, you know, wink of an eye, my career's over. And of course, you go through a moment there that's got a multitude of feelings. There's a bit of shock. Inside, you want to be outraged. I did because I thought that the article was incorrect and I thought that I had been done unfairly. Not the president accepting the resignation as much as this, this article coming out, receiving this kind of notoriety. But the most important thing was the mission I was responsible for and then the people who had been a part of my team who had been loyal to me whether they made mistakes or not, they were loyal to me, and it's my job to accept responsibility. And so that's a number of things. And then, of course, I go home and I immediately see my wife, who I'd been married to at that point for 33 years. And 
She has been loyally with me through my whole career and in, in an equally short amount of time. Everything about her life has been changed by me, not with her approval or suggestion or anything like that. So I feel like I put her in a difficult position as well. So you go through this, it's a hurricane of emotions. And there's a temptation to feel sorry for yourself, a temptation to feel angry, a temptation to lash out, you know, all those things. And the thing I'm happiest about is with the advice and support of my wife and then a a number of friends, I made the decision there that looking back, everything that had happened from that moment back, I couldn't change. That was history. And I wasn't going to do my life a whole lot of good, spending time worrying about it. So what I decided to do was try to conduct myself from that moment on in a way that everybody who ever met me or saw me, even if they'd read the article or they'd heard third-hand stories about it, what they saw of me would cause them to say, wow, if they had heard negative things, that doesn't equate to the things I saw. If they heard positive things, they'll say, oh, I heard he was a good guy. And yeah, seems to be. And most importantly, for the people who believed in me, the people who sacrificed for me, you know, the people who had given an awful lot because I asked them to, I wanted them to conclude that they made the right decision to do that and that, that I was the person that they had always believed and hoped I was. And again, you can't go back and do that in the rear. You only do it forward. And so keeping that mindset, you know, I had been perfect at it, but that's been the goal. And I think it's been very helpful. It seems like you've trained yourself over the last several decades to see avenues around every contingency. So it, it sounds like you really treated this just like you would treat any other surprise in any kind of other theater of operations. I think so. Because surprise throws you off balance. It disorients you. And that's exactly what this is. So I think the thing I learned most is when you are disoriented by surprise or by something, if you've got relationships to fall back on, if you've got strong family relationships, if you've got strong friendships, if you've got people who trust in you, if you maintain that trust with them, I found that they're like a safety net. When you fall, suddenly you find you fell into a net. And I don't know that I earned it, but I certainly enjoyed that. You know, I benefited from the fact that at my lowest point, just when I sort of should have hit the ground, there were all these people that in their own way sort of caught me and put me back on my feet. And so I've been just extraordinarily fortunate and appreciative of that. It seems a little depressing that someone writing for a magazine with an obvious slant can impact someone's career so severely. I mean, do you think they blindsided you for the sake of controversy or clicks or whatever? Well, I'm sure there's part of that in different motivations. I think that, and I don't know this for a fact, but I think that the author, I know he had a strong bias against the war. I don't know that he had a bias against me. Didn't face to face, he could never have been more friendly, but then he's dead now. So I've never been able to talk to him after, I never saw him after the article came out. Wait, he died? He died in a one car car crash out three or so years ago out in Los Angeles. Wow, okay. It's hard to stay mad at somebody who had a tragic end. There was no point in me ever being mad at him anywhere. To be honest, I think he wrote the article and I think he was surprised at how it got so much notoriety and traction. I think that after it came out, he probably then reacted in interviews to say, yeah, yeah, that's what I was doing. My guess is there was a bit of surprise on his part. 
I, and I don't know if there was intent. I can't judge that. Hard to say, hard to get inside someone's head. And when something like this happens, at least for me, it seems like there has to be a part of you that feels like something is missing. I mean, you've dedicated your life to the service of the country and you end up having to resign over some, not even that great, frankly, magazine article written by a freaking freelancer. Is there any pang of regret or something similar as a result? Absolutely. I regret the end of my career because I let a bunch of people down. You know, I left my post undone. And for the rest of my life, my career will sort of have an asterisk behind it. Anything guy good will always have an asterisk because of this. So I regret that deeply, but I don't live that regret every day because there's no point. You know, if I want to be bitter, I can, but I don't because it takes a lot of energy to be bitter. It takes a lot of energy to hate. I think it'd take me a lot of energy to hate that author. And so why, why would I do that? Uh, whatever energy I have is better spent elsewhere. Absolutely. And it, I'll be honest, your wife's reaction was funny. It was so priceless. You walk in and you say, it's over. And she says, good. And I'm thinking she just wants to go on vacation without 27 other people in tow. You know, my wife is so strong. And it's, it was amazing when she did that, because even I was shocked. She said, we've always been happy. We'll always be happy. And she has never once looked back. She's never once, you know, kind of leaned in my ear and said, you know, you got screwed. Because if she had, it would sort of pull at the smaller part of me and it might cause me to, to let that happen. But she doesn't. She just goes, hey, it happened. You know, we move on. I love it. General, thank you so much. This has been amazing. And I apologize we wore out your voice a little bit, but man, in my opinion, this was worth it. I really loved this. It was my honor and I really enjoyed it. You were very, very informed. That's key. General, have a great dinner. Finally, one meal a day. You have earned it, my, my friend. And I'm ready. Thank you so much. Team of Teams that will be linked up in the show notes for this great book. Really interesting. If you like military, business, or history, you'll find something in there for you. General, phenomenal. Next time in person. Thank you. I look forward to it. Wow, Jason, that was awesome. I mean, we just ran his voice into the ground. I feel bad, but it was worth it from my perspective. I do feel bad. We, I think we owe him a couple bags of uh, Ricola at this point. I know, man. We've got to send him a case of uh, cough drops, the Jakemans. I prefer the Jakemans myself. But man, the leadership techniques, the flexibility and adaptability, and just how candid and open he was with both the professional and personal side of his career was just phenomenal. And the overlap with relationships having to do with the AOC principles, the relationship principles, and how that fits into the military, as well as his elite level clients and business was just such a cool tie-in to what we do here. So a great big thank you to General Stanley McChrystal. The book is called Team of Teams. That'll be linked up in the show notes for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to thank the general on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. And I'm also on Twitter, at The Art of Charm. You can engage with us there. You can tell me what we're doing wrong, what we're doing right, or what you want us to do. Uh, that's again, at The Art of Charm on Twitter. And you can tap our album art in most podcast players that you got on your phone, anything where you're listening to this, you can tap the screen. You should see the show notes there. So we'll link up the Twitters up there. And our boot camp, our live program details, this is by far and away my favorite part of running AOC. They're just so rewarding. See how far people go with this, what we see with our own eyes, building those relationships, our live programs, we run you through the process. Uh, it's our it's our buds for civilians here. Bootcamp.theartofcharm.com is where you can find info on that. And we sell out a few months in advance. So if you're thinking about it, you're curious about it, get in touch. We'll get you some info so you can plan ahead. 
Also, we've got the AOC challenge, theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or as I mentioned earlier on the show, you can text charmed to 33444. That's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. The challenge is about improving your connection skills, inspiring those around you to develop personal and professional relationships with you. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show. I do regular videos with drills and exercises, very practical stuff that you can use to move forward. It'll make you a better networker. It'll make you a better connector. And of course, it'll make you a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed in the U.S. to 33444. For the full show notes for this and all previous episodes, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website, those are by Robert Fogarty. And I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.